Is school shopping as chaotic of an experience in the magical world as it is for us muggles? I'm guessing the Weasleys might say so. But this time, we're going with Hagrid. It's our first time to Diagon Alley, and it's Harry's first official trip into the wizarding world. Welcome to Belated Binge, the Harry Potter podcast that doesn't take itself or the books too seriously, which tends to happen when you don't read them till you're over 25. I'm Zach, and that's exactly what happened to me, and now I'm taking you back into the wizarding world, deep diving enough into each chapter that you can do a reread without picking up a book. Today, we're in chapter 5 of Sorcerer's Stone. The Belated Binge Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Belated Binge Podcast. I'm Zach, and I'll be your host throughout this journey, revisiting some of the most iconic series in recent memory that aside from their impact on pop culture also have one other thing in common. I nearly missed out, not coming around in some cases for over a decade. That's the belated part. But now we're going to revisit them episode by episode, chapter by chapter, moment by moment, taking a deep dive into world building, character development, plot holes, theories, themes, and we'll give away some meaningless awards. That's the binge part. Together, they make the belated binge, and today, we continue our reread of the Harry Potter series with chapter 5 of the Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone uh, first book, Diagon Alley. Sorry, lost my train of thought for a second. But first, this podcast will have spoilers as we dissect each chapter, the character motivations that go into the key moments that impact the overall greater story. This podcast may also contain some adult language from time to time. I do my best, but it might get a little colorful every once in a while. I'd also be remiss if I didn't say a huge thank you to Meg Digital for sponsoring this week's episode. Meg Digital helps local businesses get new customers through highly targeted digital advertising campaigns. If you or your business is interested, contact Mark at Meg Digital for a free consultation. Just make sure you let them know you came from Belated Binge. You can email M-A-R-C at M-E-G dot digital. That's M-A-R-C at M-E-G dot digital. To catch you up from last week, we discussed chapters three and four. Vernon led the family on a wild goose chase, landing them on a rock in the middle of the sea in a storm to get away from some letters addressed to Harry. Hagrid makes a grand re-entrance into our story, breaks the door down, gives Harry his letter, tells him he's a wizard, and gives Dudley a pigtail. We pick up in chapter five, and we'll start with this episode's play-by-play. Play-by-play. The play-by-play segment of the Belated Binge podcast is where we recap the chapter and the events that took place on the pages. For chapter five, Diagon Alley, it starts off with Harry showing more of his humble and perhaps even self-doubting pessimistic nature. Quote, it was a dream. I dreamed a giant called Hagrid came to me to tell me that I was going to school for wizards. When I open my eyes, I'll be at home in my cupboard. It's not shocking to think that now an 11-year-old boy might think, wow, that's too crazy to be true, right? Like, this feels more like there's no way something that cool could ever happen to me. I don't deserve that good thing coming into my life. It's, it's, there's a balance between those two things, between what a normal 11-year-old boy should think in, wow, that was too cool, that was probably a dream, and what Harry's probably thinking, more like, I literally don't deserve this to happen to me because it's good. 
With his upbringing, who could be shocked if that's where his initial denial came from? But it wasn't a dream. He sees Hagrid on the couch, lets an owl in the little hut on the rock, and has to internally deal with the fact that this was real, and he's stoked about it. Uh, There's some funny banter about paying the owl, we learn a little bit about wizard money, and our two new best friends set off for Diagon Alley to get Harry's school stuff. Can we just stop for one second, though, and think about how this plays now, today, in 2022? Young boy has large man forcefully enter the place he and his family are staying, tells him he's a wizard, assaults the other child in the house, plants himself on the couch, and gets up to take him away to some, you know, made-up sounding magical place. Does the stranger danger talk now have to expand beyond vans and candy to include giants and wizardry? Anyway, in our story, it's not creepy. So they jump in a boat and leave the Dursleys on, you know, the rocks out in the middle of nowhere, whatever body of water that is, and our two characters are headed to Gringotts, the bank for wizards. A couple of questions that get asked quite frequently in this fandom at this point of the story are quite obvious. If there's only the one boat, how did Hagrid get there in the night during the storm? He says he flew. But on what? Voldemort and Snape are the only characters in the series that are supposed to be able to fly without brooms. My money is on a Thestral and he sent it back to the forest when he got there. It would have to be a particularly strong Thestral, but later he says he's too big for brooms, and I can't really think of another... uh, I'm guessing probably not a Hippogriff. Thestrals, I think, are supposed to be stronger than them. Uh, There's also a uh, a small bit of um, hope that maybe it was Fox, perhaps. But, uh, again, wishful thinking. I kind of doubt it. My money's on a particularly strong Thestral. If Harry and Hagrid take the only boat, how did the Dursleys ever get off the tiny little island? Uh, magic, maybe. Or maybe Hagrid sent the boat back to the island by magic and it's not mentioned on the page. Or perhaps he just left them there to starve or swim. Who knows? On the way, we get the iconic you'd be mad to try to rob Gringotts in not a Hagrid impression. And we learn that wizarding government actually exists, and in the same breath, we learn that they're pretty much incompetent. The minister is an idiot, and he constantly asks Dumbledore for advice. On a reread, this moment is almost mind-boggling. This is about the time, uh, you know, Cornelius Fudge, who is the minister, is, quote, pelting Dumbledore with owls every morning asking for advice. This is the same fudge that will come arrest Hagrid against Dumbledore's wishes in the next book, yet still give Dumbledore props and reverence when Lucius Malfoy brings uh, the suspension letter to him. The same fudge who forces Dementors upon Hogwarts in the third book against Dumbledore's wishes. The same fudge who denies Voldemort's return in book four spends all of book five trying to run Harry and Dumbledore's names through the mud and trying to take over Hogwarts, but that whole spiral started with Fudge looking up to Dumbledore and wanting advice every single morning, apparently. If you think about character uh, development, this seems more like a character de-evolution for our boy Cornelius in the bowler hat. We also learn a bit more about 
how and why wizards are in hiding in the first place because as Hagrid says everyone would be wanting magical solutions to their problems. We also learn that Hagrid has an affinity for dragons and that first years aren't allowed to bring brooms. If you couldn't tell this chapter is a bit of an info dump. They're setting up the world we're heading into, learning some of the rules, answering some of the questions that we're bound to have, all on the journey from Iraq to London. And then we get where we're headed, the Leaky Cauldron. Clever name for a hole-in-the-wall bar. I'm actually going to go there tomorrow for Dollar Butterbeer Night, which begs the question, what is the British bar food version of chicken wings? And is it the same for wizards, or do they have something even completely different? How's it play out? It's Thursday night. Your favorite Quidditch team is playing on the TV that I guess wizards don't have, but semantics. Maybe they expecto projecto onto the wall and watch Quidditch that way. Who knows? You call up your buddies, you go down to the pub for some fire whiskey, butter beers, and you eat some... what? And how many orders of them does Hagrid get? Do they just shut down the bar when he walks in? What's that tab look like at the end of the night? Does Hogwarts have a very, very progressive view on wages for a gameskeeper without a diploma? Or does he have to go do some dishes, not magically, with his pink umbrella to cover the tab? Anyway, they walk in, and it takes about two seconds for Tom the barman to recognize Harry, and things just get crazy from there. People are swooning over him. They're wanting to shake his hand. They want to meet him. They want to shower him in attention. This boy who's been locked in a damn broom closet for ten years just took his first steps onto wizarding soil, and he's already more popular than if Jay-Z and Beyonce were his parents. But among all the hoobla, he meets... I can't believe I wrote down the word hoobla in my notes, by the way. He meets one of his soon-to-be teachers, the Defense Against the Dark Arts professor, Quirrell. No turban. He actually shakes his hand, stuttering, rambling. At this point, there's no scar pain because there's no Voldemort sticking out of the back of Quirrell's head. But there's something weird about this dude. But what is even weirder to me is the stuttering and the stammering. Presumably, he didn't have that before he took his trip abroad. Was he even this jumpy guy then? We're told that he came back completely changed and afraid, apparently, of his own subject. But everyone was just cool with that. In a universe where Polyjuice and all these other weird transfiguration abilities exist, what was the kind of vetting that somebody like Quirrell gets when he comes back a completely different person from a gap year? It, it's just odd to me. But then it happens. We get into Diagon Alley. They hit up Gringotts first. Harry finds out he's basically loaded. Then they do the mysterious pickup of you-know-what in Vault 713, which is also weird that all it takes is a letter. Can goblins detect a forgery, or should someone breaking in just fake a note from the vault's owners that they want to clean out? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Anyway, suspend disbelief. But now, we've, we've got our money, we've got our plot device for the story, and we have to wonder, was it just plot convenience so that the author could get an Easter egg in for the stone, or was Dumbledore walking down the hall at Hogwarts and see Hagrid and just say, hey... You're taking that Potter boy to the bank today, right? Mind grabbing the most highly sought-after objects in the wizarding world and 
I think Voldemort might actually be trying to steal from its secure vault. Thanks. I appreciate it. You saved me a two-second apparition. No, not likely. He wanted Harry to see this exchange. What's not clear is at this point, what's Dumbledore's motivation for that? We don't know at this moment of the story how far Dumbledore has gone to suspect, you know, Horcruxes or the connection between Harry and Voldemort. And we certainly don't have any reason to believe that at this time, Dumbledore knows or suspects Harry has to die. Unless, of course, he does. Because he's talked to the centaurs. This is the type of the thing that we would normally do over on Theory Corner on Patreon, but this week we're letting everybody in on the theory bit, so let's dig into that a little bit. The way I see it, Dumbledore's motivation for letting Harry see Hagrid pick up the stone could be one of two things, and perhaps a combination of both in, in some ways. One, he already knows that Harry's going to die to defeat Voldemort somehow. And two, he wants to test Harry and see what he's got, because eventually he's going to have to defeat Voldemort somehow. Uh, shout out to Super Carlin Brothers, by the way, for this, uh, a bit of this part of the theory. We know that in Book 5, Order of the Phoenix, Dumbledore hires the centaur Ferenz, or Ferenzi, however you say that, uh, to replace Trelawney as divination professor when Umbridge very unceremoniously fires her and tries to kick her out of the castle and... Dumbledore says, no, get, get back in your room, Sybil. And it's a whole thing. That, that exchange aside, the hiring of Ferenzi in and of itself suggests a very personal relationship between Dumbledore and Ferenzi himself. So we know that there was a relationship prior to him hiring him. There had to have been. We also know that Ferenzi is nearly killed by the other centaurs when he agrees to take the teaching post. He's banished from his, I think they call it a pack, and they literally want to kill this dude, which suggests that whatever that relationship that he has with Dumbledore, it's strong enough at this point to make that exile worth it to Frenzy. We also hear Frenzy later in this book tell Harry about drinking unicorn blood and the Sorcerer's Stone being in the school. But how did he know? Did the planets tell him that the stone was currently in the school hiding under a three-headed dog? Or did Dumbledore? Could they be that close to share that intimate of information? If so, would Frenzy tell Dumbledore what the planets foretold about Harry? Which we're led to believe that the centaurs know he's going to be killed by Voldemort, perhaps even that it would happen in the forest in that book. That's their whole Mars is bright tonight, and the pack yelling at Frenzy for interfering with what the planets say when he goes and saves Harry from the quarrelish Voldemort drinking the unicorn blood. Some have suggested and theorized that the centaurs, being able to read the planets, know that Harry is going to eventually die in the forest at Voldemort's hand, but they might not know the exact time, so they actually might think that it's happening right then and there, and that Frenzy just interfered with the planetal prophecy. So it, <laughs> it's not that crazy to think that all of these interactions and exchanges between Dumbledore and Frenzy, and the fact that the two seem to know intertwined bits of knowledge and prophecy and things that the two have they've talked to each other 
Because otherwise, why would Ferenzi get nearly kicked to death to go teach at the guy's school? They had to have a relationship, and it's not that crazy. But instead of taking what Ferenzi would have told Dumbledore at face value, oh, this kid's gonna get killed in the woods by Voldemort, Dumbledore instead went into action, and he put Harry and the greater wizarding world in the best position possible for Harry's death to bring the downfall of Voldemort. And that is why he's showing him the stone right here. It's the first test along raising him and grooming him for the task that he's going to have to take on, which is either murder the darkest wizard and serial killer of the age, or be murdered by that same serial killer, essentially sacrificed for the greater good of the wizarding world. So now the testing starts. Dumbledore wants to see what Harry's got. If he puts him in a position to see the stone, the stone Dumbledore clearly suspects that Voldemort's going to be coming after, and perhaps already has. What do you mean, Zach? Why is the stone in Gringotts in the first place? Maybe there was a previous attempt on it, and Nicholas Flamel entrusted Dumbledore to oversee it being guarded in Gringotts, far from Paris. Because otherwise, why would it be in a vault there in the first place and not in the safe in the house that we see Flamel in in Crimes of Grindelwald? You know, we saw it in that little safe. So why is it not there? Why is it in the vault in Gringotts? Wrapping that up, the thought is there was some kind of attempt to take the stone from Flamel's house, and that's when Flamel brought in Dumbledore. Dumbledore put it in Gringotts, but now Dumbledore has reason to believe it's not safe enough in Gringotts and is moving it to Hogwarts. And he's right. Letting Harry witness its removal plants the seed that if someone does break into the vault, will Harry hear about it? Will he put two and two together? Is he curious? Is he clever? Here's test one. We also have to consider that Dumbledore knows the prophecy. He knows that the Dark Lord gave him power that he knows not, and that's the key to defeating him. But what's that power? His mother's love is the protection. But is that all? Is there something else? Perhaps the connection to the minds, the horcrux inside, parcel tongue. We don't know all of this stuff yet, so maybe... Dumbledore just wants to see what foundation Harry has, you know, to set him on the course of being groomed for this mission, and maybe suss out a little bit of what might this power that the Dark Lord gave him be. Does Dumbledore already think that it's just love, or does he have to kind of see what goes on throughout Harry's life to see maybe if there's something else, maybe he can do something that we don't, you know, we don't expect but seeing the stone removed from the vault, that's step one. Now, we watch, and we see what happens next. And we're not the only ones watching. Dumbledore is watching, because it's his plan. If these kinds of theories and speculations do intrigue you, we do a lot more of this over at Theory Corner on Patreon. You can become a patron for these types of bonus episodes, other exclusive content, plus early access to ad-free podcast episodes. But let's get back to the direct chapter. We have our money, we have our plot device, our first test from Dumbledore. Now we need our pencils and our notebooks, and we're going to go to school. Harry ogles the whole time he's in Diagon Alley. He gets his books and all that stuff. We get our first run-in with who we later learn is Draco Malfoy. And already, Harry doesn't like this kid, which is understandable. He's kind of the worst. 
He's already talking some of that pure blood mania he's learning at home. He's already showing he's a spoiled little rich kid. He's already talking crap about Hufflepuff, and he's talking crap about Hagrid, and he's already making Harry incredibly uncomfortable. And this is where we learn a little bit more about Harry's character. His instincts shine through that this isn't the type of person he wants to be around. But he does spark some conversation about Quidditch, which becomes important later, and Hagrid buys Hedwig as a birthday present, who becomes beloved by all, and one of the most tragic losses of the series that we're not ready to talk about yet. And then we get to the wand shop. This is an interesting little bit where we're introduced to Ollivander. He gets to try like a hundred different wands, definitely not just three, starting with the kind that his parents had, which is glossed over a little bit, but it's a nice little moment to think that that's as close as he's ever been to having something of theirs outside of physical appearance and DNA, which is really sad that one of them didn't hook up and choose him because it, it would have you know, obviously been a, a nice little a little tie to his parents, but that's not where the story needs to go. Harry finds his magical soulmate, the Holly and Phoenix Feather Wand, the combination of champions, of course. Ollivander tells him that Voldemort's wand had the same core from the same phoenix. We later learn that this phoenix is Fox and is Dumbledore's flying companion. And more of Harry's character shows when he's out, you know, he's, he's kind of out. You know, he's put off. He's uncomfortable by Ollivander's speech about expecting great things and how Voldemort did great things, albeit terrible. And this isn't even in my notes, but it just popped into my head just now. I'm sure somebody's asked this before, and I don't have a theory. I don't have a question. Well, I'm, maybe a theory might be coming to me. Why did Fox's feather wand choose Voldemort in the first place? Is there something to that? Was there always some sort of you know, predestined meeting between then Tom Riddle and the coming decades later, Harry Potter, and that's why there was only two wands. They were only ever going to basically be designed to face off against each other. Weird. Anyway, I, I, don't, I literally can't explain it beyond that but it does seem strange that Dumbledore's phoenix is the one that gives the feather to Tom Riddle to be later the serial killer Voldemort there's got to be something there that I just am not grasping anyway in this moment we're already getting a glimpse of Harry's dislike of dark magic before he even knows what it is it's a trait we later learn that he shared with his father James and that trait fueled his dislike of Snape growing up, a feud that would go a long way towards shaping Harry's life completely. Snape was obsessed with the dark arts. James hated them. These two hated each other. Snape followed dark magic to becoming a Death Eater. James joined the Order of the Phoenix to fight the Death Eaters. Snape shares part of the prophecy with Voldemort. James qualifies as a target in said prophecy by defying Voldemort. Voldemort kills Lily and James based on the prophecy Snape shared, while Snape regrets this and ultimately protects Harry from being killed by Voldemort and works with Dumbledore as a double agent. He doesn't regret James's death. Nobody can say that. He hates James still, and hates Harry because of his hatred for James. All of this impacts Harry's life literally on a day-to-day -day basis, from 
baby to forever. And it all starts right here. Haggard and Harry grab some food, and he drops him back at the Dursleys with his ticket for the train, not telling him how to get onto the platform at all. Spoiler, we're going to talk about that in our next episode, and there's kind of a juicy theory that goes along with it. With that, we can get into our scouting report segment. Explainiarmus. It's time to disarm your reluctancy and explain how you can support this podcast. Belated Binge is a fully independent production. I read the books, write the script, record the episode, edit the recording, pick and produce the sounds, manage the content schedule, manage social media, promote the podcast, and feed producer Jack. Any costs from equipment to software to website development, marketing, any of that comes out of my pocket. And despite how many times I've been told we look alike, I'm no Harry Potter. No half giant has ever taken me to a bank full of cash and said, hey, you're rich. Having a podcast takes a lot and it's not easy. So your support is literally the only thing that keeps the show going. And there are a few key ways you can support the podcast. First, word of mouth is absolutely huge. If you enjoy the show, please tell every one of your Potterhead friends to give it a shot. Also, many of the pod players now support a rating and review function. Apple, Spotify, Good Pods, Podchaser, just to name a few. And it takes about four seconds to leave a five-star rating on the app. This can be greatly impactful. If you have more than four seconds and the app that you're using supports written reviews, that's even better. Think about how reliant we are on reviews. Whether you're buying something new or deciding what book to read next, we're always looking at ratings and reviews to weigh into our decision. Podcasts are no different, and your positive review could be the difference in someone discovering the show and deciding to give it a chance. Another great way to support the show is engaging in the conversation yourself. Whether it be answering the specific questions I pose during the show or on social media, maybe you just have a theory of your own or you want to leave some feedback. I'd love to hear from you and maybe even share it on the podcast. You can submit your thoughts by leaving a voicemail on the website, belatedbinge.com. Just click the little leave a voicemail icon on the page that you visit. If you don't like the sound of your own voice, you can also respond in written form by using the contact form on the website, leaving comments or DMs on social media. My handle is belatedbinge across Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can also email belatedbinge at gmail.com. The final and perhaps most impactful form of support is to become a patron on Patreon. I've made a ton of updates to Patreon membership benefits this season and some goals to shoot for as well. There are currently six tiers available designed to fit any budget level ranging from $1 to $20 with all the bells and whistles. So benefits range from early access to ad-free versions of the show, recognition on the website, bonus episodes, patron shoutouts, show prep notes, insider participation, binge award participation, input on show content and future benefits, a drawing for a physical gift sent from me to you and others. I've also set some growth goals that'll unlock new benefits for existing tiers and maybe even adding some more stuff as we go. The first goal is to get 10 total patrons, at which point I will start a patrons Discord server. However you choose to support the show, thank you. I truly appreciate it. Now, let's get you back into the flow of the episode.
Scouting Report. The Scouting Report segment on the Belated Binge podcast is where we take a little bit more of a focus into one specific character uh, that we want to talk about from the chapter that we read, or chapters. In this case, only one. I digress. Uh, This is another Harry chapter. Uh, We learn quite a bit about Harry's character in this chapter that's going to be key for his development along the series to ultimately becoming our hero, you know, our our savior. And for today, we're going to focus on three things that really stand out. One, Harry is humble. When he wakes up, he tries to rationalize everything as a dream. He doesn't believe he's a wizard. He doesn't think he's special. Beyond that, his first instinct when he hears about the different houses that are at Hogwarts is that he's going to be in Hufflepuff. And this is based solely off of the fact that Draco talks a bunch of crap about it and Hagrid calls them a bunch of duffers. He doesn't think highly of himself in the slightest, and this is going to be important as he grows. He'll have his cocky moments for a teenage boy of of course he will, and there's definitely going to be some cringy moments, you know, particularly Caps Lock Harry in Book 5, but think about how others in his position, learning that they're a wizard, or learning that they're special, would behave. I mean, young Tom Riddle was practically foaming at the mouth when Dumbledore tells him he's a wizard. This boy just found out that he's practically a hero to these people, and he's 11 years old. Despite this and the roller coaster to come, Harry never really sees himself as more special than anyone else. Even his caps locks moments are often followed by a, a immediate regret or are even just rooted in a sense of self-doubt versus self-righteousness. Chosen one or not, and all things considered, he stays pretty grounded and pretty even throughout the series. He's also inquisitive. The chapter that we're reading, or that we read, he's asking Hagrid a lot of questions, but not like the typical 11-year-old boy questions that you might expect. You know, do wizards really pull rabbits out of hats, which he brings up in chapters to come uh, as an idea, or, you know, can can you make something fly or you know just silly things about like what magic does is what you might expect an 11 year old to ask about when he learns about magic but no in the immediate moments that Hagrid and Harry spend together he's asking questions more about Gringotts and its security the ministry of magic he's asking about Quirrell he's asking about Quidditch and of course he's asking about the package that Hagrid picks up in Vault 713. This inquisitive nature is what allows him to work through problems and particularly piece together soul nuggets that are going to come later in the series. Let's not twist this up too horribly bad and make it overly complicated. Hermione is the smart one. 100%. But Harry shows his strengths and in moments of thinking on his feet and you know, strategizing, for lack of a better term, as the group's leader, and seems to have a knack for coming to conclusions about things kind of quickly and piecing things together and having a confidence about it. It's very similar to uh, the idea of being book smart versus street smart. Think about how he stands up to the ministry but knows what buttons not to push to get them arrested in the, in the Dumbledore's will chapter. How he leads Dumbledore's army 
but is you know, ready to take the fall and knows knows not to push and be a you know a smart ass when he gets Dumbledore's quick little nod it's it's that thinking on his feet you know he chooses horcruxes over hallows he's he's definitely not always right and he's not all that incredibly powerful he's not the perfect hero by any means but he does have his strengths and many of them kind of stem and are rooted in this inquisitive nature finally harry is loyal the moment that Draco starts to insult Hagrid, he jumps to his defense immediately. He doesn't know this kid. He could easily try to show off, make a new friend. They're 11, but he doesn't. He stands up for the people he cares about time and time again in this series. And this, this is the very first time we get to see it. Let's do some foreshadowing. Foreshadow. Our foreshadow segment, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's four moments in each chapter that foreshadow something later to come in the series. And our first one this week is the obvious Sorcerer's Stone removal from Vault 713 by Hagrid, which is foreshadowing the plot and climax of this entire book. We obviously don't think this is an accident. Dumbledore's chess game is in full swing. The second foreshadow moment is a quote from Hagrid uh, from the boat when he and Harry are you know, leaving the Dursleys to swim home from that rock in the middle of the water. You'd be mad to try to rob Gringotts. This is, of course, foreshadowing the trio robbing Gringotts and escaping on a dragon, which Hagrid also mentions in this chapter, particularly how much he wants a dragon. Bonus foreshadow for Noberta. The third foreshadow is in Ollivander's. Uh, we get the Twin Cores speech, learning about the Phoenix Feather, foreshadowing the prior, prior, I can never say this, priori incantatum. I think that's right. Uh, we see this when the two wands meet each other in the graveyard at the end of Goblet of Fire. And this is the catalyst for Voldemort going after the Elder Wand in Deathly Hollows. And oddly enough, the reason that Snape is killed. I bring that up, not that that's any kind of silver lining or anything, but it's interesting. Snape put the wheels in motion to cause the death of Harry's parents, which causes the connection between Harry and Voldemort, which causes the Phoenix Feather Wand choosing Harry, which causes Voldemort to want the Elder Wand, which causes Voldemort to kill Snape. Oversimplification, maybe, but interesting nonetheless. Side note, what if Snape didn't run and tell Voldemort what he heard about the prophecy? Or... Better yet, he just went to the three broomsticks instead of the hogshead that day. Alas, we'll never know. The final foreshadow that we want to bring up this week is meeting Quirrell. This is foreshadowing not only the break-in at Gringotts that is about to happen and come up empty from the vault that Hagrid just emptied with Harry. Uh, that's literally what he's doing in Diagon Alley in this moment that we meet him. But it's also foreshadowing the unsuspected villain that will get revealed at the end of the book not to mention Voldemort you know back of his head <laughs> with that let's just get into our game of inches a game of inches so the game of inches this is uh the this is the segment on the show where we 
try to make one small tweak to something and just kind of see what kind of ripple effect that would have on, on the rest of the series. And today, I want to go back to Harry's conversation with Draco, where he meets him in uh, Madame Malkin's, I believe is what it's called, um, where they're getting their, their robes. What if this meeting went just slightly differently? And in a believable way, many 11-year-olds, particularly those in very new situations, like going to a new school or moving to a new neighborhood or just found out that they're a wizard and a chosen one savior for an entire society of people that have been hiding in the shadows for your entire life and you never knew, and also some creepy serial killer was after you as a baby. Yeah, them too. These children, in all of these very common scenarios, would be all too eager to fit in. Make friends. What if instead of holding his values and sticking to them, he let Malfoy's words actually sink in a little bit? Now, it's not like Harry puts, you know, his fists up and he's ready to fight Draco in the robe shop. He internalizes most of his feelings toward Draco until Draco makes the snarky remark about Hagrid and then he sticks up for his new friend. How many 11-year-olds do you know that would have gone the other way? After all, Draco is a peer, a classmate, a potential friend. Hagrid is a groundskeeper of the school. He's gigantic. He has a big old beard and long hair and is roughly, what, 60 years old or so at the point of the book that we're in? It would have been really easy for Harry to follow Draco's lead, desperate for a friend, and throw Hagrid under the bus. If he did, would he have sought out Malfoy on the train instead of sitting on his own for Ron to come and find him? Would he have possibly bullied Ron, like Malfoy and his goons? Would Harry have been in Slytherin, where they probably would have treated him like a king when they found out that he could talk to snakes? Would he have possibly still had a feud with Malfoy, but instead of the you know, kind of traditional good versus, I don't want to say evil, but uh, protagonist versus antagonist, uh, good guy versus bully, whatever. What if their feud was actually trying to be whatever you want to top dog in Slytherin House? Would he have gone down the path some Death Eaters thought he might that Snape brings up in Book 6 and been that next dark wizard that they could all rally around with their you know previous master gone into the ether? <sighs> Thank God we don't have that story. In this one, Harry has character. He's loyal to his friends. And he doesn't like that boy he met in the robe shop. At all. Each week on the Belated Binge podcast, we give away three meaningless awards to either characters in the chapters or the chapters themselves, which I know might not make sense if you're new, but it'll make sense in a minute. Uh, the first one that we're going to give away this week is the Game Ball. The Game Ball. So the Game Ball for this week's chapter, and this is where we, um, I should probably tell you, the Game Ball is essentially the the standout character from the chapter. It's the it's the MVP award. It's the winner for this chapter. 
And this is this one's obvious. This is Hagrid. He takes Harry away from the Dursleys. He introduces him to magic. He carries out this phase of Dumbledore's plan. He buys him Hedwig, Hed, Hed, blip, 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 Hedwig, who becomes a beloved character in the story and the symbol, the constant companion for Harry until, well, it, we, we're not going to talk about that until we absolutely have to. But beyond just the gift of Hedwig and the all of the things that he does physically on the page in this chapter, on top of this, it's also what he did for him in showing us as the reader a part of Harry's character and giving him something endearing to admire in our protagonist. Particularly when Draco starts in on Hagrid, Harry steps up for his new half-giant friend, and that's as important to the character as anything else that we witness on these pages. So let's give away our red card. Red card. So if the game ball is the award for the standout positive character in the chapter the red card is the one we wish we could just throw out of the game and give it to the worst standout character in the chapter and for this week we're giving it to lucius malfoy who's not even in this chapter at least not on the pages directly and i this is kind of to Lucius through Draco, because I expect Draco is going to have an opportunity for some of these awards as we move on through the series. I'm not a seer myself, but he definitely has some moments that are going to come that are pretty worthy if I was a betting man. But his first interaction with Harry, this really does just tell us what kind of little kid that this is. The answer is the, the worst. So why is it Lucius and not Draco? Well, at this point, Draco's a spoiled little brat, but he's parroting everything he hears at home and just doing so to try to feel self-important, it seems. You know, what he's hearing at home is undoubtedly blood purity, death eater, hate speech that's all coming from his father. If Draco didn't have a clan member for a dad, maybe he doesn't think he's better than everyone and try to be a bully from day one at school and be so judgmental right now in the robe shop. As the story goes on, he is going to have to take some responsibility for actions that he decides to take, particularly the ones that he goes out of his way to take. But today, I'm blaming dear old dad. And for that reason, Lucius is getting our red card. Our final award to give away for this episode is the Fumble Award. Fumble. So the Fumble Award doesn't go to a character, it goes to the moments in the chapters that we're covering for the episodes that just didn't quite hook up, the things that didn't quite make sense. Um, whether they were plot holes, maybe not you know necessarily glaring ones, but just they could just be little things that didn't just, I don't know, just don't feel right. It sort of drops the ball as a story. And I have a couple of things to bring up today. First, Hagrid's wand being snapped in half, and Ollivander asking if he uses the pieces. We know he does. They're in his pink umbrella. But when Harry's wand breaks in Godric's Hollow, later on in the Deathly Hollows book, he asks Ollivander if it can be repaired or used, and Ollivander says no. Did they not just have a spare umbrella at Shell Cottage, or did it just for some reason, did the rules change, or is this just 
something we have to chalk up as Dumbledore made it possible for Hagrid to use the pink umbrella in his snapped in half wand shards, but since Dumbledore is not alive anymore in Deathly Hallows, Harry can't do the same thing with his wand? Sure, why not? Another thing we mentioned earlier, Hagrid and Harry taking the boat from the shack. How did the Dursleys ever get back? That seems cruel if they had to, you know, swim, right? But I guess that pales in comparison to Hagrid trying to turn Dudley into a pig, giving him a tail. He was mad at Vernon. Why do you attack the kid? That's, that's kind of messed up. But it didn't even happen in this chapter, so it doesn't have anything to do with this award. But still, what? come on, Hagrid. Anyways, that wraps up our Meaningless Awards segment, and with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Belated Binge Podcast. But before we go today, I do have some really exciting news that I want to share. We're expecting a special guest to be coming on the pod, not next week, but the following one. And the chapters are lining up for a great discussion. If I know anything about this person, we're going to have a lot of fun. I'm actually really excited at how it uh how it's lining up uh, but we're gonna have amanda from the fox and the foxhounds podcast on as a co-host if you're unfamiliar she and her husband host a spoiler free chapter by chapter podcast and they're actually wrapping things up they're in book seven right now and since her husband never read the books she's had to hold her tongue on a lot of things to avoid spoilers so we're gonna give her a chance to let it fly And I can't wait for that coming up again in two weeks from now. And if you want to check out their podcast, I definitely uh, recommend it. It's one of my favorite chapter by chapters going. Actually, it's my favorite going right now and up there in favorites that I've heard. Ta-da! So, uh, with that, we've reached the end of the show. As always, shout out to producer Jack, who we work like a dog. Uh, remember to follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review if you enjoy the show. Five stars, please. That's how we're going to tell the algorithms that we matter and hopefully grow the show. Uh, you can also support the show by becoming a patron over on Patreon. You can uh, receive early access to ad-free versions of our episodes, as well as exclusive bonus content that we post on Patreon only. We're also on social media at Belated Binge on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our show segments are available on YouTube. And we'd also love to hear from you, so go ahead and reach out to us. You can comment on posts and on videos. You can slide into our DMs, or you can email the show, belatedbinge at gmail.com. That's B-E-L-A-T-E-D-B-I-N-G-E at gmail.com. If you're reading along next week, we're going to cover chapters 6 and 7 of Sorcerer's Stone. Otherwise, we'll see you next time on the Belated Binge Podcast.